in every country. Trees, you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA. Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and is brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. This is Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory with this month's podcast featuring Dr. Nina Basick and Patrick McRae. Dr. Basick is a professor at Cornell University in New York, and McRae is a graduate of Cornell University. This podcast features their talk on determining adequate soil volumes for urban trees. It was originally presented at the 2012 ISA International Conference in Portland, Oregon. Oh, good afternoon. Um, I can walk around with this, so I'm going to do that, and I'm hoping that uh, the after-lunch coma will not set in. I'll try to be lively, try to keep things going. I've spoken uh, to you, to this group, uh, many times, and I like to share what we're doing at Cornell to uh, make it useful for folks out in the field. So today we're going to be talking about soil volume. It's a big issue. I've been studying this on and off for 25 years or so, and so a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today really deals with a story of how we got started on this, how we became with, uh, came up with our first soil volume calculation. That was over 20 years ago, and now with some new technology, how we're trying to uh, move that on, make it better, make it more user-friendly, uh, allow people to, to really get more adequate um, uh, information from this. So it's going to be a story. We're going to be talking about a n- number of things, and I'm hoping will be time for questions at the end. So basically, we're going to be talking about the current state of soil volume calculations. So what is it like? What, how is there? Maybe some of you have heard about rules of thumb, so much soil volume to so much uh, crown projection. We'll talk about how that happened. Uh, what about GPR, ground-penetrating radar, and air excavation? Uh, how that's actually enabled us to really see what's out there in terms of root growth, so we're not just modeling, we're actually looking and seeing what root growth is. We're going to compare some of the old methods with some of the new ones and see how we're working towards a more accurate method. We're not there yet, okay, we're not going to give you the, you know, the the quick and dirty way of doing this, but we're getting there, and then looking at some strategies for finding more soil volume in urban landscapes like... uh, soil under pavement, breakout zones, porous pavement, radial trenching. We'll talk a little bit about how we can find more volume where it doesn't seem that there might be a lot of volume, particularly in downtown paved uh, sidewalk areas or parking lots. So we are all familiar with uh, this. Perhaps we walk down the street and we see there's a new sidewalk going in. We can see the uh, reinforcement before. We can see the forms. The concrete's going to be poured. And what's this thing here? Well, that's where the tree is going to go, right? And so we know the soil under there has been compacted in a way so as to bear load in the pavement. 
but there's really been nothing done to that soil or that area to allow tree to really uh, enjoy a larger rooting volume. So we see these things all the time. We see the fact that that ball is going into that hole. And if you're not in Portland, which I don't know what's going on here in Portland with the soil and the fact that there seem to be big trees and very small uh, holes, but in a lot of the country, this is kind of a, you know, death knell for trees. They may live for a while. They may do okay if they can find other soil, but it's not a good situation. And this is the kind of area we really thought was important for us to look at because this is the downtown area, the paved area, is where we most need trees to improve our quality of life. And maybe some of you have seen this famous picture of Washington, uh, Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., Quercus fellows planted in a large open volume of soil and those planted in vaults under the sidewalk, actually pits that are suspended under the sidewalk, and planted at the same time, same species, look at the effect of soil volume on plant growth. So if we're going to be looking for plants to do all the ecosystem services we expect in terms of stormwater, energy conservation, habitat, all those things that we want them to do, we have to get some of these trees to live long enough, to get big enough to give us the services that we want. And as soon as you start looking for it, you see it. Here's a downtown New York City on a on Phil here, here's a ginkgos in a large open volume of soil, and here's ginkgos planted quite big in a tree pit. And the difference in growth, the difference in color, you can see it everywhere you go. So we thought this is a pretty important thing for us to look at, and uh, we're obviously not in Portland here. I mean, there are places where, you know, how did that tree get that big? That's always what I think about before it went over. The fact that soil volume is limiting, and we can see these great pictures, whether uh, here's Denmark. I mean, it doesn't have to be the United States or the Northeast or, the, or any place you see this lack of soil volume as being a key feature. And when I started working uh, at Cornell a long time ago, uh, there, people were saying, well, there's all these factors you should be looking at in terms of urban tree health. And that's what I look at, is trying to find ways of solving the problems of growing trees in urban environments. And I looked at all different kinds of things in terms of salt and all kinds of pollution and too much water, too little water. And I, it really came to... I came to know in the, in the late 80s, mid-80s, that the, the key thing was having enough usable soil for these trees to grow and is going to enable us to get further. So uh, in the mid-late 80s, a uh, student of mine, Patricia Lindsay, and I uh, developed a method uh, and it was published in Journal of Arboriculture at the time in 1991, specifying soil volumes to meet the water needs of mature urban street trees and trees in containers. Um, and from that paper, uh, from what we learned from that paper, a lot has been derived. We learned in that paper, and I'll show you in a minute how we got there, that we need a lot more soil, or trees need a lot more soil to get to their envisioned design size. And how are we gonna find that soil? And because we knew that, in terms of this, this methodology, which I'll show you in a minute, we developed CU structural soil to find more soil volume under pavements. So everything was kind of generated from this issue that how can we find more soil, more usable soil for trees to grow? So uh, I'm gonna go through this method because some of you probably may not know it or may only know the last slide. 
which uh, is like the rule of thumb. But there is a, a method involved, and, uh, and in order to go further, we really had to understand what we did in the first place. So the first thing we need to do in terms of calculating soil volume is estimate, and this is a predictive model, okay? It's not saying, well, here's the tree, and how much soil volume is it using? Is the roots using? Are the roots using? This has enabled you to predict, if I allow so much soil volume, how big a tree am I going to get eventually? So we needed a way to estimate leaf area. And the way we came up with that is a twofold method. We did something called crown projection. Now, crown projection is a fancy word for the area under the drip line. That's all it is, area under the drip line. And if you envision a tree, think about the tree you want to have in the future that has a certain diameter crown, and you basically look at the circle on the ground that that crown would create, the circle on the ground under the drip line is the crown projection. And if you have, say, we're going to talk about an example tree which has a 20-foot crown diameter, you'd have a 10-foot radius, you can calculate the area under the drip line as pi r squared, the area of a circle, and figure out for a 20-foot tree, you're going to have 314 uh, square feet. But trees are not two-dimensional. Tree leaf area is not two-dimensional. It has depth if you look at the crown, if you look at the whole shape. And so what we had to add on to that is leaf area index. That's the stacking of leaves on top of the crown projection. So you can look at a tree and say, well, obviously I've got a crown projection, but I've got a lot more leaves than just the crown projection in that canopy, in that crown. So this was, we did this with the literature and we did this empirically by going out to nurseries in western New York in about late September, early October before the tree leaves were going to fall. And we calculated crown projection, the, the size of the crown for many trees, and then we took off every leaf of the tree to figure out how many stacked leaves there would be on top of the crown projection. That's something you don't want to do every day. Uh, but we did find that the leaf area index, you know, we, we're, gonna, we're sizing this for a worst case scenario. So, you know, you'd be surprised, in fact, that you know, trees like Laditzia have very low, not surprised, low leaf area index, they're very open. But when you get to lindens, pears, some of the other trees, in fact, we did this with little leaf linden, Tilia cordata, because we wanted to size this for a worst case scenario in terms of density of crown. And we get to about four, in other words, four leaves on top of one another on top of the crown projection is about how much stacking you have, how much three-dimensionality you have. And so if our, our example tree, our 20-foot tree growing in Ithaca, New York, which is a pretty, not so much this summer, but generally it's pretty cool and moist, uh, again, we calculate our crown projection based on the area of a circle. You know, if it's 10-foot radius, pi times r squared, radius squared, you have 314 square feet. And then we're going to multiply that by our leaf area index, which we found empirically by going to nurseries, taking off the leaves, and also through some of the literature. So if these are for mesophytic, this is not for evergreens, not for desert plants, okay, but for trees you'd find in mesophytic forests. About four is, is pretty high in terms of your leaf area index. So that's the first two ways that we're going to estimate leaf area. 
And now we have to figure out, well, where are we? I mean, you can't just do this for Ithaca, New York. I mean, that's nice enough, but we'd like to be able to use this wherever we're going to be growing trees. And a great way to figure this out of how hot and dry it is, is to use a US Weather Bureau Class A pan, a pan evaporator, which every weather station has in this country and also in other countries. They may not call it a US Weather Evaporator, but it, they all have pans. And the great thing about a water pan like this, it integrates how hot, dry, windy, or humid it is, which is going to be the, the driving force sucking water out of the leaves. Okay, so uh, again, sunlight, temperature, humidity, wind, all of this equals atmospheric demand. So we don't have to measure each one of those things. We just have to see how much water is evaporating from the pan in your locality or my locality and somehow connect that to the tree leaf area we just estimated. All right? We estimated the tree leaf area. Now we're going to see in this location how hot and dry is it the weather, basically, during the growing season, pulling water out of those leaves. Because once we know that, we can figure out how much soil we're going to need to provide that water for the tree. Okay? So this is a key issue. And, uh, and, and again, we're looking at our example tree from Ithaca. Our highest mean monthly evaporation rate from a pan is about 6.21 inches in July. We divide that by the number of days in July. We have about 2.2 inches of water, milliliters per square centimeter or cubic inches per square inch. And we convert that to feet because we're going to be working in feet. We come up with a figure, and this is all be looked up. This is not something you have to do. You go to your nearest weather station. You can get this information. And we have basically 0.167 cubic feet of water evaporated per day and now it's July. We're looking at the hottest, driest month of the year. We did that purposely. We're not as concerned about how hot and dry it is in April. We're really more concerned about the hottest, driest month. And for most of the northern hemisphere, it's June or July is our hottest month. Now I'll come back to this because uh, when we did this in 1988, and it was published in 89, published in 91, things were very different. That's 25 years ago. We used the weather data that was uh, on average of 30-year weather data, basically from the 50s to the 80s. And so we may be seeing some differences now that we need to take into consideration. So and then we have also what, what this is. I'm sorry, it's an old slide. But here's three days. These bars represent different days in the in growing season. And here's the amount of water loss per unit of structure. So milliliters per square centimeter or cubic inches per square inch, all on the same area basis. This is the pan. This is how much water the pan evaporates. And there are four trees we looked at. And uh, you can say it's old because it says Sephora. Stifnolobium now, Fraxinus, Amelanchier, Antilia. We used four different species, which thought, well, they have different leaf sizes and compound or simple, and some are more. And we wanted to see if we had to size this thing for each individual species, or could we do it for all species, plus or minus? What you see here is that on these three days, so white corresponds to white, and these other hatch marks correspond to the other hatch marks, the same three days, 
The pan is obviously losing a lot more water on a square uh, area basis than are the leaves of these trees that we had in pots and we were measuring water loss from them. You can see that the tilia and the amelanchier lost a little bit more water on these same days than the uh, stiphnolobium. And that would be something we would figure stiphnolobium much more drought tolerant than the others. But basically, the differences weren't that big. The big differences were more leaf area, more water loss. Okay? That swamped the species differences. Not to say that they're not there, but just the bigger the crown was, that kind of swamped the species differences that we saw. And the other thing was, well, so we have this pan data, and we have the trees, and we have to somehow relate the tree water loss to the pan. And so we looked at these, and we did a lot of work in the literature, and we said, well, the leaves are losing about 20% of what the pan is. And that makes sense. A pan is just an open pan of water. It loses, it, it evaporates in response to wind, humidity, temperature, sunlight. And so does the, the leaves of the trees also are losing water, but they have, they're not like an open pan of water. They've got cuticles, they've got stomata, they have resistance. So the resistance to water loss is what we're measuring here. And we're saying, basically, if you have a pan that evaporates so much water, the tree, the same amount of tree leaf, the same area of tree leaf, would evaporate about 20% of that. Okay? So this was experimental data. So here we are, this complicated step one, where our first, our 20-foot tree, we had 314 square foot crown projection pi r squared times 4, which is our leaf area index for the most dense type tree leaf density. We look up our evaporation rate, and we calculate it in cubic feet uh, lost per day. And our evaporation ratio, well, how are we going to link this to our local weather station? And so it's going to be 20% of what the local weather station, this is what the local weather station has, but the leaf is going to be about 20% of that. We multiply this off all across in higher math, and we get cubic feet of water loss per day, which is about 4.2 cubic feet. We don't think of cubic feet of water. It's about 31 gallons for this 20-foot diameter tree in Ithaca, New York, on the hottest day of July. 31 gallons of water it uses. Okay. But we don't want to... Now, our next step is to take this and figure out how much soil we're going to need to supply the tree with the water it's going to use for the hottest time of the year. We're always going to err on that side. So, you know, water, uh, soil obviously is not a solid. There's a, about 50% solid mineral and organic matter, and there's, an, on an ideal world, it'd be about 25% air and 25% water. So for 100% soil, you're going to have some percentage of that that's available water. And that's what we have to know when we're using different soils. So a sandy soil might have as low as 6 or 8% available water per 100%, whereas a silty clay soil or a silty loam might have as much as 20, 21% available water per that same 100%. So we have to know the soils we're dealing with and what their available water holding capacities are. There are some tables, but it can be tested in the lab. So if we take our cubic feet of water loss per day, that's what we just found out, 4.2 uh, cubic feet of water, and we divide it by the available water holding capacity of the particular soil, 
Uh, and then we're going to talk about rainfall frequency. And that's, we, want, we don't want to size this soil volume for one day. We want to get it through some period where we would expect to have rainfall from some, some interval that we can say, well, we have we're, our soil is basically full of water now. She's going to use the water. And when can we expect another rainfall event? So we wanted to size it for a certain interval, which meant more than one day. So and we calculated this for Ithaca, rainfall frequency, the average number of days between critical rainfall events. And this is pretty arbitrary. We chose a tenth of an inch as a critical rainfall event. Pretty pitiful. A tenth of an inch, boy, I mean, hardly anything would actually get into the ground. But that's what we did in our original uh, scenario. So here we are, taking our 4.2 cubic feet, dividing about, here's a silty loam, 15% water holding capacity, times, let's say, a 10-day frequency. We wanted to get this through 10 days of water use before it would rain again. And we come up with about 300 cubic feet of soil for this 20-foot diameter tree in Ithaca, New York, okay? Which, funny enough, equals one cubic foot of soil per square foot of crown projection. Remember crown projection is just the area under the drip line? One cubic foot of soil. So that, you know, it seemed pretty, uh, seemed pretty low a little bit, but we, you know, we went with it. We said, this has been based on science and modeling, and it was something better than just putting your finger in the air and saying, how much soil do I need? So, we actually then would figure out dimensions, and if you would, you know, you don't need any more than three feet, that would be a lot in terms of depth. But for that 600 cubic feet, or eight cubic meters, we could do 10 by 10 by three for a 20-foot diameter tree in Ithaca, New York. So we're getting somewhere. The reason for doing this is to allow city foresters, planners, landscape architects design for an adequate amount of soil so the trees would get big enough to give us their benefits. So I just want to, I know you probably can't read this, but what I'm going to show you here is we put that same 20-foot tree in different cities. And here we have Ithaca, Seattle, Mobile, Indianapolis, you know, Denver, Phoenix, and Vancouver, BC, Calgary. And we calculated all these different things that I just showed you we did for Ithaca. Here's the hottest, driest month of the year. Here's the rainfall frequency. And we had two different soil water holding capacities, a 10%, which would be like a sandy loam, and a 15%, which would be more like a loam or silt loam. And the one we just did was for Ithaca. We got 300 cubic feet of soil we needed for that 20-foot tree. But if we look at different cities, uh, Seattle has a really dry summer. Uh, so we had a, a high rainfall uh, interval, so we had 600 cubic feet there, 300, 500, 350, 350. We jumped down to Guelph, Ontario, 250. Vancouver, 450, 550. This is cubic feet of soil. I left out these two guys, Denver and Phoenix. Phoenix, you only need 5,400 cubic feet of soil to support that tree. So what does that tell us? It tells us we can never grow Norway maples, not that we want to, but little leaf lindens or any other mesophytic tree in Phoenix, unless, unless what? 
We irrigate it so we forget about rainfall. And the same thing with Denver. Denver can be pretty dry, too. And so if you leave out the Pacific, uh, sorry, the, uh, the Southwest U.S., U.S. Southwest, Denver and Phoenix, which we just did, Arizona, New Mexico, other Southern California would also fall into this category. Basically, all of these come, the highest is about 600, the lowest is about 250 in terms of cubic feet of soil. So we came up with a rule of thumb. And this is what you might have heard about. Two cubic feet of soil for every square foot of crown projection. So a lot of people go right to the end and say, well, in fact, sites, which I've been involved with sites, uh, technical committee for many years, use this in sites in terms of how much soil you need to supply a tree. They say two cubic feet for every square foot of crown projection. Um, okay. Uh, and so basically, you'd cover most of the country except for that uh, southwestern area where it's really dry by using this formula. You would overestimate for Ithaca, but you'd be a pretty on par for a lot of other cities that are hotter and drier. So it's not a bad rule of thumb, and we don't want you to throw it out, you know, right now saying, okay, this doesn't mean anything anymore. But I want to show you now, it was 20 years, 25 years, and we're starting to look at this again. Why? Because we have some new technology. And some of you may recognize what this is. This is a ground-penetrating radar, souped-up tricycle, uh, which uh, Gary, uh, Tony Mucciardi has uh, developed from uh, his shop. And we were very anxious to look at the efficacy of looking at this in terms of mapping routes. So we did all this work. Some of it's modeling, some of it's empirical. Now we want to say, well, where really are the roots? We have this tree, it's so big, it may be, you know, whatever size it is. How much soil are the roots actually colonizing? Could we actually test what we did 25 years ago and see how accurate it is? So with this and with the use of the air knife or air spade, air excavation, we could actually uncover the roots without destroying the plant. It's a very painstaking thing, but we were determined to get better at what we started so long ago. So if you're not familiar, this is a ground-penetrating radar. Here, these brown things are roots. As the unit goes across them, it emits electromagnetic radiation, and then whatever object it encounters reflects that radiation back, which is picked up by the machine. It can go on the ground, it can go over pavement, so very neat. I mean, from I was just so excited. It's like, you mean I don't have to dig everything up to see where the roots are? And we're still working with that. And you get basically a, a virtual trench. So here's we're walking along the surface, zero to some you know 20 feet, and this is the depth. X, one of these X's is a root that's been encountered by the machine. Now it's pretty. It's not so simple because everything in the soil has a signature that is going to be reflected back. And the, the beautiful thing about this is Tony's been able to sort of sift out to basically look at the signature of a root, which is basically a tube of water. Okay. And so it's painstaking. It is skillful. There's a lot of software involved. It's not just like a, ooh, gee whiz, there it is. Uh, so, and it only looks at, only detects roots that are about a little less than a half an inch, maybe at one centimeter in diameter. So it won't get the fine roots. But we thought, hey, this is something we can start to work with. And this is what a virtual trench looks like here, zero to 23 feet. 
and we'll see roots in the top zero to eight inches, eight to 16, and uh, uh, below 16 inches to the depth that we have root growth. And we can get a root length density by looking at this. It's like a virtual trench. We're just looking at it. This is what the data would look like. And we so, as it luck would have it, I have uh, built some sidewalks to nowhere in, um, with trees in different soil conditions, in compacted soil and CU structural soil and various things, all the same, Norway maple tree, and that was many years ago. They've now got quite a bit bigger, but we thought, well, here's a way to test if the GPR actually works. And I gave this talk, in fact, about this uh, several years ago to this group to say, because I wasn't willing to accept that you just pass this thing over the ground and you get roots and you believe it. I wanted to ground truth this. So make a long story short, we scanned the sidewalks in the different soil conditions. We had compacted CU structural soil. We had uncompacted loam. We had compacted loam. And we had different growth. And we wanted to see where the roots were. Here's that, uh, the isoplatinaries and CU's com uh, structural soil compacted after about five years. And in order to ground truth this, we had to take it apart. It's like the, so we took our concrete off and then we dug a trench on the side so we can push the soil into the trench and get the entire root system out as one. And here we use our air excavation knife or air spade, whatever tool you like, and uncover, uncover the roots as one root system without destroying any of those roots. Now, these were Norway maple, they're fibrous. I had to then skeletonize, take all those fibrous roots off because the GPR wouldn't be seeing them and just get the skeletons of one centimeter diameter roots or bigger. And we did that, I won't show you that, that was painful, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, and then I could, then for each tree, each of uh, 10 trees, I had quadrants, eight quadrants per tree, which I'd say, well, the GPR said I had three roots, and I said I have four roots. So I had the gold standard, what I actually saw, versus the predicted amount of roots from the GPR. And here's another root system from a compacted soil. Okay, so very different root systems you get with different soil conditions. So the compacted loam, and you can see the pancake and where we had thick mill plastic separating out, one of those roots made a run for it and went down the plastic. But uh, you have a very different root system you see between uh, where you can get roots colonizing a large area where they are otherwise they are very shallow and restricted. So not to show, this is a nice graph that tells you here's, this, here's what the CU's uh, radar signal predicted for CU soil, number of roots, okay? So here we have in each of the 40 quadrants, um, and here's what I actually saw with my eyes uh, in terms of how many roots. So basically, here's six roots, and it's just a little, you know, about 5.8 roots, so it's pretty good. We were getting a pretty good agreement between what the predictive number of roots were with what I saw. So we were feeling really good about this because now we could start using it in places like this, out of the experimental realm, into the city, where here I have looking at two little leaf lindens, both basically planted at the same time, one doing great, one on its last legs, and I want to know what's happening with the root zone. I want to know why is this one on the left doing so much better 
in the same virtual condition than the one on the right. So here we have Gary Feld doing the scanning. Here's our one on the left. Here's our tree pit, sidewalk. And then we have this little green space. Uh, and lo and behold, this tree got out and was colonizing this little green space around this building and was having just a, a great old time. Um, so here we have the, the breakout zone here, Liz Linden, with the lawn breakout. And we took scans. We found the roots were all in the next lawn of this tree. So it had made its way out and had colonized a much larger area, which we think gave rise to a much healthier crown. And we can even see, if we look, slightly raised uh, seams where those roots, in fact, we found the roots were just right under there, making their way into the next green space. And here we took cores, increment cores, of these trees. This was the linden with the breakout zone from 82 to 2011. And we saw it was kind of up and down, you know, basically it was over two, two millimeters, a, a ring that's two millimeters, it's kind of really small. Anything over that is going to vary over the years based on climate and so on. But we here we have a, a kind of history of that tree, and it's doing pretty well. But, but what we wanted to look at was what the rainfall was in relationship to this increment. So we, the blue line is the rainfall for those years pasted on top of the increment for the tree. And you can see, basically, there are relationships between more rainfall, more growth, more rainfall, more growth. So having that breakout zone, an area open to rainfall, was allowing that tree to utilize it and get more water for its use, okay? So kind of an interesting way of looking at it. Now here's the tree on the other side. Same species, planted at the same time. Uh, not, but look at it, it got big. So it, it was able to do well, and then something happened. It wasn't, I'll show you another tree which never made it out, but uh, so here's that linden the tree pit with no breakout zone. And it got big, and then it basically started going, going bad. It basically started doing very poorly. And you can see by the, uh, you can see in here, in this, there's a new bit of construction that happened here, I believe, uh, about 10 years ago or so, that may have changed the rooting volume for the tree. And there's no breakout here. It's just in the sidewalk. And so here you see the increment of growth. It's pretty good. I mean, it's up and down. It's way above two millimeters. And then it gets to about 2004, and it just sort of goes down the tubes in terms of the increment of diameter growth. And so something happened there that stopped, that basically the root system hit the wall. It was restricting water intake, and the tree followed suit. So here's, here's a 42-year-old linden. That's 42 years old. Uh, that's what happens when it never gets out. So there's the increment of growth. Basically, it's mostly in the first few years, tree did okay, but there was no soil volume for that tree to grow, and it's just inching along. The fact that it's still alive is quite amazing, but obviously not what you, when you plant a little leaf linden, you don't expect that's going, what you're going to have in 42 years, right? So not very successful. 
So let's get move out of the city back into some experimental work. I'm going to go through this. Uh, we've been doing a lot of different work to get us to that next step. So in, at Cornell, we have a, an arboretum where we had many red maples kind of in, without any interference of other trees. And we looked at these, the study to see, well, if we could take many different measurements and actually look at the root zone, both GPR and air spade. Again, I'm still skeptical. I still need to have that proof to see how, where the roots really are. And so here you see my uh, graduate student, Pat McRae, who's doing this work with me. And that's a sod cutter. And he's basically taking a strip of sod off of the tree. And where's Gary Raphael? And we're rolling the sod up uh, to uncover the soil. Here's another view of what that is. We took spokes away from the tree trunk, basically took the sod cutter, rolled up the sod, and then what do we do? Uh, we took our air spade and we uncovered where are the roots. And we went out as far as when the roots stopped. Okay, We started at the tree and we air spaded until there were no more roots. And what was nice about it, we didn't have any other trees to interfere. Well, there's roots from that tree coming in here. And so this was, again, we had 11 trees. We did this with every tree. Uh, this is why you have graduate students. Uh, and, you know, you can see the, we've painted some of the roots. Here we hit the mother load. I mean, uh, enormous root there. Uh, but this is more typical of what we saw. And we go out with our trench, this is an actual trench, to where there was no more root growth. We did these several spokes for every tree so that we could then figure out, well, we have an average root diameter on the ground of so much. We know what the depth of the roots were, too. In fact, we sort of lucky out because this soil was so compacted, it was made from dredge, the root growth never went more than six inches into the ground. So we didn't have to find the roots that were down at 15 or 20 inches. So this is uh, what we're working on now. So we call it air spade volume is the actual volume we found by looking at the tree and uncovering, uh, finding the roots, okay, and finding out how much they had grown compared to the LB, the Lindsay Bassig method, which we did and published in 1991. I don't know if I'm going to get... Okay, so what we see here uh, is for... Every cubic meter of Lindsay Bassick volume, how many cubic meters of the air spade volume? And what we were surprised at at first was that, uh, well, we still were surprised, you know, for every two cubic meters, we were getting, uh, you know, we were not, we, the air spade method was predicting almost twice as much as the original method. And we actually added a little more leaf area index because we had grass under the tree, okay? So that was something we added. But remember I said, you know, we were really kind of, we did this back in the 80s. We had more rainfall. The heat wasn't so great. Uh, what if we were thinking about a greater interval? And that's the weakest part of that old method was the interval of rainfall frequency. What if we looked at uh, a situation where we had a 20-day interval, well, if that's the case, we're basically right on the money in terms of what we predicted with Lindsay Bassick and what the air spade or we, the actual root colonizing volume was. So this is interesting because we might think that we were actually, our climate has changed enough in 25 years that it's hotter, drier, and 
less frequent rainfall. We get the same amount of rainfall in Ithaca, but it comes in big bursts and at more uh, far intervals. And so we're actually going to measure that, because if we can get the data off of the weather station, we're going to see if this is actually the case. So what we're now looking at is if our air spade volume, this is going to be the new method, uh, what do we, how can we predict how much soil we're going to need, because this is also going to be predictive, uh, based on what, what are we going to measure. So crown projection is what we did before, it's just the area under the drip line, and we get a pretty good relationship if the crown projection gets bigger, you're going to need more soil volume, okay? Uh, but it's, it's not that great. The problem, the inherent problem with crown projection is here is a sugar maple. You can see that's the crown projection. And here's a sugar maple. And here's a crown projection. So you have different shapes. It's not always neat. You can't predict the amount of so uh, tree volume unless you have just a bubble-headed tree, which is what we started with when you have real trees in the landscape. So crown projection may go out the window because it has inherent problems. So what about crown volume? This is really where we're going for. How much, if you look at a tree, uh, we can measure the height, the width, the depth, okay? We can get a cubic crown volume, all right? And that's what we're going to be going with. I think that's going to be helping us more in the future. And here is the, the crown volume. So for so much crown volume on, the, on this x-axis here, so many cubic feet of crown volume, how much soil do you need to get there? Or you can say, I've only got this amount of soil volume. What am I going to end up with in terms of crown volume? And we hope to put this in a predictive spreadsheet that you can go online and, and punch in your numbers and where you are and your locality and figure out how much soil volume you're going to need to get a certain crown dimension. Now, this has got a lot of variation in it. Different trees have different crown volumes. Also, someone asked me, well, can't you do it on a DBH method? In terms of, if I want a 20-inch DBH tree, what's the soil volume I'm going to need? Well, this is a problem because DBHs can be, you know, you have a crab apple with a 15-inch DBH, and you can have an oak with a 15-inch DBH, and you can have a very different crown volume. So although this looks okay for red maple because they all look the same, uh, I don't think this will be a very useful method when it comes to different species. Okay, so now we're just going to go quickly into the last... Uh, 10 minutes or so looking at different strategies, because we're still working on this method, okay? We're getting there. We're going to get there in terms of with, with GPR, when we get more uh, confident in the data, but we're also using airspeed. And where I can, in the real city environment, I'm going to try to look for routes uh, as well. I'm hoping to do that. So here's one of the strategies, porous pavement. We heard about porous pavements. Uh, but obviously, the, the big advantage is you get more rainfall. And we saw that in the trees with breakout, they were responding to rainfall, whereas the trees that, well, I'll show you. Uh, here's a tree in Glenditzia, and, you know, no chance for rainfall to get in here. This is just a port in place concrete. This has been here for quite a few years. We were taking GPR measurements. This is the annual increment growth. Pretty poor uh, for this, but it's there for oh, 35 years or so. Okay, so this tree's been there uh, for, for quite a long time. 
uh, here we are taking the measurements, and the crown dimension is pretty small. So once we are get more and more data, we're going to be able to say, well, for this crown, we predict this much soil volume, and we're going to be able to test that. So we just go down the, the street, and here's the uh, water. This water relationship has no relationship to the increment of growth on that previous tree. Down the street, we've got trees, a good tree on the brick, and this is a, a lawsuit waiting to happen. But uh, you have these gliditsias. This is in ground 45 years. Interestingly enough, there are plenty of roots under the bricks. And there's also roots under the sidewalk. The sidewalk, in this case, happened to be six inches thick, which is another neat thing we can tell with GPR, how thick the sidewalk was, versus typically four. And you have no movement in that six-inch deep sidewalk versus, obviously. So that's another interesting thing, making the sidewalk a little bit thicker might end up with less damage. So here's the increment of growth for the honey locust under brick. Lots of ups and downs much more than the tree right before it, and it also responds to water, because you're getting water through the porous pavement. And here's the, so here's the difference. Right down, these are actually in the same block. Here's the gliditsia with nothing, no porous anything, just a very small pit, and here are the gliditsia in that brick pavement, and this is 45 years, this is 35 years. Okay, so, it's no, in neither case is it optimal for gliditsia, but maybe that's not important. Maybe this is okay. Maybe a you know, tree that's 30 feet tall is okay. We may need to think about that. Whereas a tree that's you know, 25 feet tall may not be, or it may be. But we may be able to size our soil volumes to get trees to a certain size and say, well, we're not going for the 60-foot one. Okay? But uh, we may want to do that too. Here's another issue of porous pavement. This is a pull-off to a um, trailhead that the city of Ithaca wanted to make into a small parking lot so people could uh, access the trail. And we said, well, this is a great idea for putting porous asphalt and structural soil together to see if we can actually get good stormwater capture as well as tree growth. So here we put two feet of structural soil under this whole parking area, compacted it, and we laid half of that with traditional asphalt, as you can see here, and the other half uh, with porous asphalt. So the same parking lot. Um, and if you're not familiar with what they look like, here is traditional asphalt on the left and porous asphalt on the right. So there's a lot, lot different is that there's no real fines in the, uh, no fine coat in the porous asphalt. So then we saw cut into it and had my students planted bare root accolade elms. This was back in 2005. And um, we basically went right into structural soil in here. I always like this design element here. I have one and a half inch elms, and when those snow plows come through, the snow plows are going to get hurt, not my trees. So. Um, we had to protect them because they went in very small. This is the first year, uh, 2006. And uh, uh, so the important thing here is that in structural soil, which had a total porosity of about 26%, 31% of that porosity is macropores, okay? And so it allows a very fast infiltration rate greater than 24 inches per hour. 
Whereas in soil alone, which has greater total porosity, 34 porosity, most of those pores are micropores, doesn't, and only 2% are macropores, allows for an infiltration rate of point, a half an inch an hour. So you can't get water detention just by putting a, a porous surface. You have to have a reservoir under that to allow an, a fast infiltration rate. So here they are five years later, doing well. Uh, these are same trees. And I took this uh, about a week ago. Here you can see, that it's hard to see, these are the trees in the parking lot. And what we know now is the trees in the porous part are about a meter and a half taller than those in the traditional asphalt part, but they're all doing well. So we wanted to look at root growth here, and here we took a, our GPR again. So what we're looking down on, and here are the two trees in the traditional asphalt, here are two trees in the porous asphalt. And we'll just, here I'm looking down from the sky, here's our root growth of the trees in traditional asphalt, the surface ones, the moderate ones and the deep ones, not many deep ones. And then this is a neat way of, of uh, showing you the density of root growth from a plan view. So where it's hotter, basically orange, brown, is where you have greater density of root growth. Where it's cooler, you have fewer roots, okay? So this is a, so you see from this tree, you have basically a, a plume of roots around here maybe around here, which are the greatest density of roots. It's kind of another way of looking at it. But I want to show you, so this was the traditional asphalt, and the trees were doing okay. So here's the trees in the porous asphalt. A lot more surface roots, quite a bit of medium-sized root, medium uh, density of medium-depth uh, roots, and a lot more deep roots. This is 16 inches to 30 inches roots in that uh, area. And this is the density of roots under porous asphalt. And so you can see the different colors here. You have a lot more roots. And this is all, again, squishing the pancake, all the roots together as a square foot to see how much density of roots you have for these two trees that are in the porous asphalt. So we think this is pretty good. The trees are growing bigger. And even if the trees didn't grow bigger than the other uh, trees, we do get, we have, in 24 inches, we can get six inches rainfall in 24 hours, and we can hold that in the porosity that we have under the porous asphalt. So here are the black, um, black bars are the root density, non-porous, and the gray are the porous. And if you look at the total, you have like one and a half times the amount of roots in the, under the porous asphalt as you do, and they're deeper, than you do in the traditional asphalt. So we think this is pretty neat. Okay, quickly, other thing, breakout zones. We talked a little bit about that with the linden, getting into that area next to it. There's always the incredible breakout zone, which you sometimes get ahead, whereas here's a ficus in Australia growing in a sewer, uh, getting all, in, all it needs in terms of nutrients and water. Uh, you don't often see, this is a true street tree. Uh, well, you see it again. Here are lindens, uh, sorry, gladiceas in pits, and here also gladiceas in pits, but eh, right in there is a park. Roots are getting into that area, breaking out. So we were looking at, you know, here's a gladizia in the park, showing it's a 60 feet tall tree. This is what it could be, uh, not like we saw on the street. 
And we, what we do see these trees uh, on street, and this is a residential neighborhood, they are 60 feet tall in some cases, and we say, well, how is that happening? So we looked at under pavement, and we'd taken our air spade, and we can actually map the roots going under the sidewalk and into somebody's front yard and out the back, into the backyard. They are, they're going for it. And that's how, in some of these smaller areas, you see, how's that tree growing? It's able to find more volume. So can we engineer this? So here we are, narrow tree lawn, putting a new tree on it. We took off two flags of concrete, dug down, uh, 24 inches, put structural soil in, to give it a safe passageway into someone's front yard. We know the trees and roots are going to go there anyway, but we want them to go down deep into someone's front yard, not at the surface. And here we are looking at the root growth under that area which was very neat. Here is our tree, our two changed flags. We scanned it. It's a control tree here, plant at the same time, without any structural soil underneath, not a safe passage into. And what we found was kind of interesting. I'll show you. This is the tree where the tree was. Here we're walking along. We get to the two flags, and we get a tremendous amount of root growth under those two flags, down to about 24 inches. Here's the control tree. Here's the tree. The root growth is pretty sparse. It's going under the, under the sidewalk, but it's very much at the surface, very few deep roots. The feeling is that if we can get roots deeper, there can be less or fewer amount of sidewalk damage as those roots grow radially. So this is something we're actually engineering to see if we can do this. Last thing, or almost last thing, radial trenching. We heard a little bit about this before in another session, but we also can modify soils to allow more root growth even when there's not a, uh, they're compacted but not necessarily paved. We do this kind of radial trenching. Here we are, backhoes coming toward the tree. This is the tree's already in the ground, but it's stunted. Find where the roots end, but go backwards, modify the soil, and uh, put it back in the trench. And so in Cornell and his wisdom, and we did this with this linden, which was in this uh, excavation area near a building. We did this nine years ago. The tree's looking good. Then Cornell and his wisdom said, well, I want a new building over here. So the trees are going to go. So we said, well, before the trees go, go, let's look at where the roots are. Did they actually colonize these trenches? So here I show you this. Um, I can't use this anymore. Um, here are roots in the trench. When they hit the trench of compost, non-compacted soil, they just basically you know, go through it and, and colonize a much larger area, whereas between the trenches, you get very weak, small amount of root growth. So going into the trenches was a really big boon, and we can do this for even trees that are in the ground, uh, or we can do it to start with. Here's another place where we did the same thing. South-facing brick wall, hot, dry, not enough water coming out of that little strip of ground was the leftover space for this building. We, and the, the trees would actually go brown several times a year. We'd get dry, they'd lose their leaves, it would rain again, they'd gain the leaves, and these trees were getting smaller instead of getting bigger. So we got rid of the grass, for one thing. Who wants grass there? It's just competing. We took a small bobcat and we did radial trenching between these ash, and uh, we got quite a big difference. In a couple of years, we now had a larger volume of soil to allow these trees to 
get the water they needed to, uh, to meet the demand that was uh, exacerbated by that south-facing brick wall. So this is uh, something that can be done. Last thing, we've been using structural soil. We developed it uh, 15 years ago. Jason Grabowski, who you heard and I, was working with me at the time. We have over 3,000 installations over the country, Canada, uh, some in Europe. This was some of the early stuff, 1997. We were putting it in a continuous trench. This is another way of getting more volume, whether it's strata cells or silver cells or structural soil or sand-based structural soil. This is another thing to think about in terms of if you can't find a breakout zone, if porous pavement is not enough, uh, if you can't do radial trenching, these are other options to find more volume. And here's what we would do, we would like to do to see the, the basic cross-section of that. And here we have showing you what, you know, here it's interesting, there are some homestead elms planted in 2003 on the street. All, this is all structural soil. But here we have a, a Zelkova planted 30 years ago, a much bigger trunk, and the homesteads basically have uh, caught up and look like it's been there for all, all time. So here's uh, one way of utilizing all that soil volume. And here's another one which I'm really happy about. This is structural soil all through here. And these are chinkapin oaks, Quercus muhlenbergii, and they're just doing fantastically well. These have been in the ground for about six years. So, conclusions. It's possible to map root growth in open soil and under pavement and compare it to tree leaf area. This is still something we're working on. Openings in pavement do not accurately represent the volumes of soil colonized by tree roots. So you don't really know. You see something, but you not know where it is. In regions where trees rely on rainfall, it's critical that water be allowed to infiltrate into tree roots. I mean, I can't say this enough. If we pave right up to the tree, we're going to have problems. Several strategies may be used to encourage roots to find more root volume, soil volume, under pavement. Breakout zones, porous pavements, structural soils, and ground penetrating radar is a technology that will allow us to revisit and refine the soil volume calculations of 20, 25 years ago. So I will leave you with my uh, website, and I'm just about made it, I think, 1.30, it says on my clock. So uh, I hope that you can utilize my website. There's a lot of information there, all kinds of papers. And I like the roots on this pavement sur surface. So www.hort.cornell.edu slash UHI stands for Urban Horticulture Institute at Cornell. So thank you very much. This concludes Dr. Nina Bassick's and Patrick McRae's talk on adequate soil volume for urban trees. If you would like to learn more about growing urban trees, you can find additional materials at the ISA web store, including Trees and Development by Nelda Matheny and Jim Clark. If you would like to receive CEUs for listening to this lecture, please visit the ISA online store and select Online CEU Quizzes. If you have recommendations for topics to cover in future podcasts of this series, please contact the ISA at elearning at isa-arbor.com. Thank you for listening to this episode, which was brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907.
Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. In every country, trees, you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.